Um, if you would open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 11, uh, that is where we are going to spend our time today. And, and as you do that, um, aside from admitting that I was compared to Bob the Tomato, I need to admit something else to you all. I love Ikea. Yep, I love Ikea, and I know that admitting the problem is the first step to recovery. But see, I don't love Ikea because of the quality. And I don't love Ikea because of the prices. And because we have allergy issues with diet, I don't love it because of the food. No, I, I love Ikea. Granted, we do have some furniture that we picked up 20 years ago that still exists and works today. But I love Ikea for the experience connected to it. See, when Sheila and I were newly married, we would actually go to Ikea for a date night. I know, like I am the romantic one in the family. <laughs> <laughs> but see, um, while it wasn't the most exciting, number one, my wife doesn't do movies, so you couldn't do dinner in a movie. She likes to be active, so I need to find something that was active. And living in Chicago, you couldn't do things outside most of the year. So Ikea was a safe place to go because you could be active. But more importantly, we actually got to dream a little bit. See, I was encouraged early on that I needed to be a student of my wife. And Ikea allowed me to study my bride. And see, while we were there, I would learn, if I actually paid attention to her and not the stuff around, what it was she liked and what she didn't. We walked past the living room section and I would learn what colors worked and what were kind of off base, like we're not going there. I also learned as we walked through the uh, kitchen section what new things she was okay with and what degree of things have to be this way were there. I have to admit that for some reason after we had children, it wasn't quite the same experience at Ikea. <laughs> it shifted from a date night to a mission. It became how fast you can get in and out. And if you could do it without a meltdown from one of them, it was a bonus. <laughs> but if you've ever purchased something from Ikea, the joy of the hunt quickly became the challenge of the assembly. Yeah. Now, it's kind of that way with most self-assembled products, is it not? You know what that computer desk is supposed to look like. You've got this picture. And you've got the perfect plan for where it's going to be sitting in the room where you're going to place it. And you open the box and you're excited. You start taking out the pieces. And what you thought was going to be 30 minutes often becomes now a couple of hours because of the 1,800 pieces that were on the ground. The only way they sell furniture is because they don't tell you how many pieces are in the box. 
they kindly include a set of instructions. And sometimes they even give you this little itty bitty wrench that somehow is supposed to generate enough force to tighten something down. But as you look at the instructions, you realize there's no words. There's a bunch of drawings that resemble the parts that are strewn across your floor. On the picture, they have letters on them. They might have retained their letters on the floor. And basically, you realize you're required to interpret these hieroglyphics based upon your best judgment at best. More often, your best guess. You know you're going to have a handful of parts left over, and you just hope it's not an important one. You know, as I was thinking about this, I realized that I think a self-assembly course should be a requirement for high school graduation now. (laughs) For me, living the Christian life often seems like an Ikea assembly experience. I've read God's word and I think I have a good picture of what the outcome is supposed to look like in my life. But when push comes to shove and life presses in, And the children take everything that's on the ground and put them everywhere else. I struggle interpreting how I'm supposed to look like that picture I have in my head. I find myself thinking, God, what I see here is a great idea. I love that idea of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And I'm 100% committed to getting there but how do you expect me to make that happen? If you've ever found yourself there, maybe you're in that season right now where you have this picture of what life is supposed to look like and you have a realization that there's a whole bunch of extra pieces right now left on the ground. This morning's for you. If you have it all figured out, then this is your bonus week. I'll give you 100 points for being here. This morning, God is going to, through Moses, and I pray through our time, provide three clear written instructions that have withstood the test of time to walk us through how we are to fulfill our calling as the children of God. And last week, in chapter 10, Josh effectively helped us see how important it is to apply the gospel to our life, to move from law to grace. He reiterated that because the Lord is gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, We can live. He gave the Israelites these written tablets. They dishonored him. They break. He gives them to him again. And even the fact that they still disobey, he said, that's okay. I got this. Go possess the land. And it's with that backdrop that we approach this morning. 
See, chapter 11 is the next step. It's not just about the application of the law. It's reinforcing what applying the gospel to our lives looks like. And if there's one takeaway this morning to make it simple, I put it at the top of your handout. Didn't want you to miss it. As we consider what God has done in Jesus, we can confidently and courageously live as Christ calls us to. So unlike the Ikea instructions where we're often required to come up with our own interpretation of how things are supposed to work, he gives us three clear written instructions to effectively apply the gospel to our lives today. So here's the three. Number one, verse one, love confidently. Number two, verses two through seven, consider deeply. And then number three, which closes out verses eight through nine, it is live courageously. So let's read this short section and dive in. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and to all his land and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abraham, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up with their houseloads, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. And that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. See, here in verse 1, the Lord through Moses shares the first instruction. He says, love confidently. You shall therefore love the Lord your God. The phrase, the Lord your God, is the same phrase that has been repeated over and over and over and over again. But the specific instruction here is different than the instruction back in verse 12 of chapter 10. 
See, if you look back at that verse in the previous chapter, Moses said, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. The order is important. I want you to keep that idea of fearing the Lord in the back of your head. Write it on the side of your paper because it's going to come up later this morning. But here in chapter 11, instead of starting with fear, Moses says, first, love the Lord your God and keep. And then if you look at the detailed instructions that follow, it seems on the surface that there are four different things listed. It says we are to keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments. They look different. But if you view these through a biblical lens, they actually reinforce the exact same idea. And I believe that the Lord gives us those four things to address each one of us exactly where we are as he created us according to the way that we view life. Giving us these four things which refer to one thing is a demonstration of his kindness and his desire that we understand this. In a sense, he's saying now, I know y'all don't think the same way. And that's okay. I got you covered. So let's ponder those four things to see if we can understand what's being reinforced here. It says, love the Lord your God and keep his charge. What's God's charge? Well, everyone here likely could recite it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, right? That's his charge. You see it over and over and over again in scripture. It's what Josh covered last week. See, if you go on in the passage last week, after you fear and then you serve, it says to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. See, this is God's overarching vision for his children is that we love him with all of our being. That's the charge. But then it says we're to keep his statutes. Well, what are statutes? Statutes are simply written laws. It's detail upon detail. God gave 10 statutes in a sense, but the people of Israel at this time had hundreds of statutes. Hundreds. That's for the checkbox people. And then it says we're to keep his rules. Well, what are rules? Well, rules are actually understood principles. They're bigger picture than detail upon detail. They're the principles by which you can operate. And then it says we're to keep his commandments. And what's a commandment? It's a divine rule.
That means they're divine principles. And principles are simply the category of statutes. And what are statutes? What do they flow from? They flow from the charge. It's all the same thing. See, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment or what is the divine rule? I am confident that those around him expected to pull out one of those hundreds of statutes. And that's not how he responded. He responded with the charge. He responded with, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and with all your strength. But then he didn't stop there. He said immediately, and the second is just like it. It's equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In effect, Jesus reiterated precisely what this passage is saying. God's charge, his statutes, his rules, his commandments are summed up into one thing, love. So whether you're a big picture person who's motivated by passionate charges, or if you're a detailed box checker who requires a written list to follow, or even if you're principle driven, God through Moses wants to be sure you can understand this, that this whole thing comes down to one thing and it's love. So put a little differently, verse 1 of chapter 11 could be read like this. You shall therefore, because of all that Moses has reminded the Israelites of over the last three or four chapters, love with confidence. See, they can love with confidence because of all that God has done for them. They're being instructed to love on account of God's actions, God's particular investment into them, toward them throughout their history. Now, this principle and instruction to love applies to us. See, on account of what Jesus has done for us, we are to love confidently. Our confidence rests in the undeniable, complete, perfect, sacrificial demonstration of love of the Lord our God in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I started to try to find out how many times the idea of confidence in the love of God for us was found in scripture. I realized that was without end. I spent too much time going down that path. I even tried to find if somebody had counted it and you could find it somewhere. Didn't matter how many tools I looked at, it didn't exist. But as I was going through it, I realized that the process of trying to find it was fruitful for my soul. So I want to share a few examples. I have the path.
passages, the addresses listed underneath this bullet on the handout. But the Apostle John, Jesus' beloved disciple, described the love of God, how that should frame our thinking. In 1 John 4, 16, John writes, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The Apostle Paul reminded the church in Thessalonica of the love of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, this is the love one another, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And then Simon Peter clarified the same call to love. In his first letter, he says in verses 22 and 23 of the first chapter, said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, connected the Christian life to love, saying in chapter 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And in his address to the followers of Jesus in Galatia, Paul reminded them of the same. He said, hey guys, if you haven't realized this, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then John wanted to be sure that the church understood the reason behind our confidence in loving others. As he wrote in chapter four, his first letter, we love because he first loved us. So friends, believe it's safe to say that we are to love confidently on account of what God has done for us. That gets us through verse one. Brings us to our second instruction. That is verses 2 through 7. And that is that we are to consider deeply. Verse 2. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or see it, consider. The question is, what are God's people being called to consider. And thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave it to interpretation. There's no picture that kind of gives you an idea. He writes it for us. Moses starts with the discipline of the Lord your God. Now, talk about something that's counterintuitive. He says, consider, ponder, contemplate, meditate on, reflect on the discipline of the Lord your God. Now, if I stop to consider the discipline of my parents or a teacher or a coach or an employer, I normally don't come up with warm, fuzzy thoughts. Do you? Anyone? And yet, somehow, according to God, through Moses, I am supposed to love by considering God's discipline. I, I realize that oftentimes 
this kind of counterintuitiveness causes me to just move past it. It's like, that's too hard for me to think about. I'm just going to continue moving on like those weren't connected, and then I feel better about it. But I couldn't. See, Moses says to the people of Israel and to us, consider the discipline of the Lord your God and consider the ways God has worked in your midst. Because what's interesting is that God's work in our lives and God's discipline are kind of connected. Usually connected. And so let's take a look specifically how Moses encouraged the people of Israel to think about what God has done. He says, consider his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Now, how many of you, if you were asked to consider that, have a visual picture in your mind? Like for me, because I'm a picture person, I think of a mighty hand and I just think of like a really, really big fist. <laughs> like this way my brain works. And an outstretched arm just means he's like this. And I'm going, ah, yeah, great. So you got a big guy standing like this. I mean, it's Jesus on the cross. Okay, I got it, but that's not enough. I don't think that's what he's referring to. And so because some people are like me or I am like other people, he goes and describes God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm towards the Israelites. He reminds them that God protected them, his people, through a variety of events in their recent history. And so he reminds them what they're supposed to remember. And so he starts out by saying his signs and his deeds in Egypt, says here, by referencing the 10 plagues he brought about the Egyptians on account of the evil they had done towards the Israelites. So he says, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. See, he's calling them to remember that God orchestrated and secured their freedom from captivity. He's asking them to remember that God rescued them. Friends, if you know Jesus, God rescued you. And then he says, remember what happened at the Red Sea and what he did, verse 4, to the army of Egypt to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. God protected them. He stretched out his arm and he caused the sea to flow over those that were pursuing them. If you know Jesus, God has protected you. What's interesting is even before I came to know the Lord personally, I can look back on my life and see how God protected 
me. But that's not all. Verse 5. They're to consider what God did to them in the wilderness. He says, until you came to this place. It's true. God exercised discipline in the wilderness to the people of Israel for their hard-heartedness by requiring them to wander for 40 years. But see, He didn't leave them to themselves for those 40 years. See, the reality was that God led them through the desert for 40 years. If you recall, during the day there was this cloud, and at night there was this bright fire. They were not left alone. And during that time, He provided for every need they had, right? They had water, they had food. Manna showed up every morning. Now, I don't know about you. I don't wake up, walk outside, and there's eggs and bacon sitting on my front lawn. I don't even get gluten-free crackers on my front lawn. And then when they complained about the fact that they had something to eat, what did he do? He gave them protein too. See, God guided and provided for them. As he disciplined them. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, God guides and provides for you as he disciplines you. And then in verse 6, Moses instructed them to remember, to consider, to think about what God did to the sons of Korah. If you don't know that story, write down Numbers 16, verse 12. It starts there. It says here in this passage, And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, how the earth opened up its mountain, swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of Israel. If you're saying, well, I didn't hear Korah in that list, that's because Korah is the person he's talking to when all that happened. Go back to Numbers. Think about that. 20,000 people earth opens up, gone. God's greatness and discipline on display in a single moment. That's what they're to consider. If you're a follower of Jesus, I imagine there is some point in your life that you can look back at when you tangibly experienced the painful discipline of the Lord your God for your disobedience. There are consequences that follow our sin. 
He says, verse 7, For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that He did. They had within a single generation first-hand knowledge of all of those things. All that God had done for them should have brought ceaseless joy. And though we don't have that degree of experiential knowledge, God has preserved it for us. What's interesting is that there's nothing listed here as Moses engages the people of Israel that you can't find somewhere else in Scripture to understand what he's talking about. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing that you have to assume. It's not an Ikea hieroglyphic that says, hey, I don't know what he's referring to, so I have to come up with something. I can go back and I can look. It's spelled out. It's preserved for us. And so we are being instructed to read and consider and reflect and meditate upon all that God has done. If you really wanted to, you could spend hours, days, weeks, months, years considering these things. Here's the problem. Our problem is the same problem the Israelites had. By nature, we prefer the earthly, the temporal, the things that we can tangibly feel over and experience over the spiritual, the eternal, the things of God. We often don't desire God. So here's Moses saying, hey guys, you're to love your God by considering God deeply and we have a problem because we don't desire God. That's the problem. Our indwelling sin, the sin that we inherited as a descendant of Adam who made a choice to pursue his own self-gratification over being satisfied in God, is our barrier to our satisfaction in God. Our sin subverts our pursuit of God. We say, I want these things. Oh, no, you don't. I want these things. Oh, and it goes back and forth. And our sin does this by making everything else seem more desirable than God. We're more enamored by the gifts of God rather than finding joy in God. And so here you have God through Moses instructing the Israelites, I'm about to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. By nature, you're going to desire that more than me. So love the Lord your God and consider what I've done for you deeply. And just as the Lord was reminding the Israelites to love Him and consider Him as they're preparing to receive the gift He's giving to them, we are to do the same. I believe that's why God starts 
with loving Him first and then considering. And so, in effect, He's saying, guys, God's your Lord. Love Him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And you do that by spending time with Him. Dwell with Him. Abide with Him. Open His Word. For it's there that your mind is going to be renewed. So that way you are prepared to truly enjoy the blessings that He's giving you. So the blessings don't become the temptation. And once you've done that, once you've started with loving Him and considering deeply what He's done, He says, here's your third instruction. Live courageously. Verses 8 through 9, live courageously. Moses says, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong. So listen to my instructions so that you may be strong. So I have a question for you. What phrase normally follows be strong in Scripture? And courageous, right? So Moses is saying, these are the instructions you need to live courageously and enjoy the things God has in store for you, that you are not tempted by the gifts he's given you, but you may enjoy the gifts he's given you. This idea of living in a way that we enjoy the things that God has planned for us is interesting. Remember, Moses in verse 12 of chapter 10 started with fear. And now he ends with courage. There is a distinct difference between fearing the Lord and loving the Lord courageously. But I sense as followers of Jesus, we often forget it. Maybe you don't. I do. Now I am consistently amazed by the way the Lord works all things together when I least expect it. So I am at work this week picking up some copies off a centralized copy machine. And in the back of my head, I'm trying to figure out, Lord, why in chapter 10 did you start with fear and then you end here with courage? Like, why is this the order? And I spent days going, I have no idea. He's telling me it's important, and no matter how much I studied, I'm like, I don't get it. And a dear brother in the Lord, good friend, noticed that I was standing there. I probably was zoning out, not aware of people around me. And he was like, he comes up and he was like, hey, are you preaching this weekend? (laughs) And I said, yes, I am. He was like, well, what are you teaching on? I said, well, Deuteronomy 11. And I shared with him the one takeaway. And that was really all I shared, was that because what God has done, when we consider those things rightly, we are enabled by him to live in love courageously. And that precipitated a little discussion. And in that discussion, he had shared something with me that was poignant for the thing I was wrestling with. 
See, he described how a college Bible professor had once shared the motivation for Christian obedience. Now, mind you, this was something that had been shared with him a couple decades ago. And he just said, you know, Christian obedience kind of progresses from fear to duty to privilege. And I was like, huh. Well, thank you, Lord. Like, clearly I'm not smart enough to figure it out there. So you've got to use a conversation that happened 20 years ago with a friend of mine that realized I was zoning out. Just to prove that it wasn't me who came up with it. So I started thinking about that. Early on, many of us respond to the Lord because we fear the alternative. The thought is, we don't want to go to hell. So as a result, we say, Lord, I need you. Friends, that's not wrong. Hell is a place to be feared. Eternal torment is not something to shake a stick at. In those moments, we obey the Lord. We live because we're afraid of the discipline of the Lord. I am sure that some heard about the sons of Korah. This thing opens up, closes, and they say, I don't want that, Lord. I'm yours. (laughs) And that's not wrong. Because when we place our trust in Him, we become the children of God. And then as we mature, we begin to realize that as children of God, the Lord asked us to live like Him. We see all of these things that say, hey, you're supposed to walk this way. Be holy for I am holy. And then we start striving to obey because we know we ought to. It's duty and not delight. And friends, that's not wrong. I remember being in that place for years in my faith, struggling because doing the right thing seems so hard. And I'd look at those that were more mature than I was, and they seemed to have this sense of joy that eluded me. Like, I don't get it. Like, they're just obeying naturally as if there's no problem here. And I'm like, I am struggling. Like, Lord, can you give them a challenge? Can you do something? (laughs) And I pursued him, not because I delighted in it, but because I knew I ought to. Was that wrong? No. And the result of that pursuit out of duty was that over time, I began to find delight in Him. And I began to realize that there's more to the Christian life than just duty because as I became more like him, my desires started to change and he developed a desire for him and delighting in him in me. I didn't have to do the work. 
And what we see here and what we see Jesus calling us to is a place where we love the Lord to such a degree because we've spent so much time with him that we've been shaped more and more into his image. And as a result, we're able to actually enjoy the things he's given and be thankful to him for those things. Because by nature, we think we deserve those things, or we earn those things, or we worked for those things. And when we're in that place, we stop fearing what happens when we don't obey. Because we know he's got this. We don't dutifully go about our day. We find delight in our day. God calls us to find our satisfaction in Him that He would become the delight of our souls. And for the people of Israel, He's telling them to be courageous, not fearful. Think about this. He says, keep the whole command. Remember, what's the command? One thing, love. Keep the whole command. That you may be strong in the land. To walk and to talk and to love and to live like children of the king. And friends, the same is true of us. We're to live courageously, not fearfully. We are to be strong in whatever place God has ordained for us to be and live and walk and talk and love and serve and, and, and actually think of ourselves as children of the King, heirs to the throne, because that's who we are, His beloved children. Amen. He loves us unconditionally. We sang about it this morning. It was prayed this morning. He demonstrated that love by taking our sin upon himself. He pays the penalty. And all he requires is us to say, hey, love me. Not all is our stuff. You don't have to be prepared. You don't have to be clean to love me. Just love me. And he's got the rest. Now, if you haven't done that, maybe this idea of not wanting to be captive to sin, maybe you don't want the earth to swallow you up. Love him. It's not hard. There's not a four-hour course that you have to go through. Just love him. But you need instructions. And I don't know about you, but anytime I've tried to work on a car, I found it easier for me to work with someone who knows what they're doing than for me to try it on my own. YouTube's great and all. <laughs> Just saying. But it's a whole lot better than someone walking alongside of you. Amen. We need one another to love Him. 
So look back at the instruction manual. Step one, love confidently. That's it. Step one, love confidently. Step two, spend time with him. Consider deeply all that he has done. Yes, going back and looking and understanding what he'd done in the lives of the people of Israel is important. But Moses specific pointed out to the adults, he was speaking to them, not to the children. So for you, you need to go back and look at the thing God has done in your life. And that needs to become your stones of remembrance. And then because of all that, you're freed to live courageously instead of fearfully. And as you take possession of the land or walk where God has ordained you to walk, you can live courageously knowing that the great God who called you individually by name and rescued you and died for you and forgave you now goes before you because he will protect, he will guide, he will provide. He'll discipline along the way. But he wants you to live courageously, unashamedly of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, your word is rich, complex, and clear. You came that we may have life and life abundantly, that we might enjoy the life that you've given us. Lord, just as you encouraged your people to go and take possession of the land flowing with milk and honey, you encourage us as heirs to the throne, as children of the King, to walk with confidence. Not afraid of the enemy, not afraid of culture, but with confidence to speak truth where truth needs to be spoken, to love in ways that doesn't make sense to many. Lord, give us the courage we need to embrace you, to trust you, to live in you. Lord, by your Spirit, let your word come to mind. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to love as you loved. Lord, and by your spirit, even now, help us to respond in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.